This is John 1, 1 through 18. <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <clears throat> he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. All right, let's get this out of the way. I know what you're all wondering. I did not wear this same shirt last week. That's not it? Oh boy, this is going to be great. No lies. What? All right, so you should see the other guy. I was arm wrestling a grizzly bear. I was playing darts. You pick. Probably the darts. Um, So, yeah, in all seriousness, uh, it does look like I've injured my rotator cuff. And uh, we'll find out more after I meet with the orthopedic surgeon. So, yeah, waiting to get an MRI and all that good stuff. And, uh, yep, darts. So, today's the first Sunday of Advent, and I'm going to try to do this one-handed. I am right-handed, so this does feel incredibly awkward. Uh, But uh, Advent is is the season of Christmas. It's the season of expectation. It's the season of anticipation. Every year, uh, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas is the time that we celebrate Advent. Uh, What we are celebrating is the Incarnation. Where Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh, became flesh, as the text in John 1 says. Advent literally means coming, and this season, as I said, is a time of anticipation, and it's the anticipation of the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah. During this time, we remember his first coming, and we look forward to his second coming. The title for our Advent series this year is The Word. During this series, over the next four weeks, we'll look at John's account of the Incarnation, which uh, Kenan just read for us. John, unlike Luke's account, uh, Luke is typically the account that uh, people read around this time, sitting down together as a family maybe on Christmas morning or something. 
because it gives all the details of the happenings of his birth. But John talks about the incarnation from the macrocosmic view. It's big theological truths that he's talking about. He's dropping massive theological bombshells from the very first sentence. In this first chapter, he talks about the attributes of God, the eternal existence of God, God as creator, and his work of salvation. And so John is writing about far more than just baby Jesus lying in a manger. What will we see during this series? Well, as we unpack, it, unpack this chapter, we will see how Christ, the word of God, was rejected. How he was prophesied by the prophets in the Old Testament. How he came. And how one day he will come again. My hope is that through this series, in all the midst of the hustle and bustle of the season, we would quiet ourselves and be reminded of the meaning behind the incarnation. Jesus came to dispel the darkness. The promised seed that we've been looking at from Genesis all the way back to Genesis 3 came to crush the serpent's head. As Charles Wesley wrote in his familiar song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Light and life to all he brings. And this is what John 1 will show us. Today's message is entitled, The The Word Was Rejected. And we'll unpack this by looking at the word, rejected and received. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Uh, As we begin to celebrate the Christmas season, this Advent season, I ask that you would prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts to receive, to receive from you uh, more of your your grace and and knowledge of what Jesus has come to do, and that we would be reminded of what really is the reason for all of our celebration, that we would remember the truths of the incarnation, that it's not just simply a nice festive time, though it is indeed that, it is a time to remember that Jesus took on flesh. Jesus, who is God and is God, became flesh for us. So help us to remember that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The word. To begin speaking about the word being rejected, we first have to know what the word is. Let's read John 1, 1 through 5 again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light, or I'm sorry, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now you'll notice as we work through chapter one, light, life constantly coming up, and the way that John writes, it's, it's almost like it's here, there, here, there. It's, it's kind of all over the place. Linear thoughts with the way that John writes doesn't necessarily work all that well. Uh, but that's how he writes. This has been one of my favorite passages for a long time. As I said, there are some macrocosmic theological truths in this passage, big, big theological truths, and we're going to try to connect the dots, even though John kind of sprinkles them all throughout. Uh, First, when we see the word, and I will explain this in a moment, but for right now, know that this is speaking of Jesus. Verse 1, Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was with God and was God. 
he's described as and the source of light and life. Later in this passage, verse 7 shows that John, this is John the Baptist, came to bear witness of the light. And in verses 15, 29, 30, and 34, both John the Baptist and the author John, lots of Johns, make it clear that they are speaking about Jesus. It's in verse 29 that we find the answer to the expectation of the Old Testament. Brought this out last week. Where is the Lamb? John the Baptist, seeing Jesus on the shore of the Jordan River, says, Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So to be clear, the author is writing about Jesus. Now in these first five verses, we see that Jesus was from the beginning. This is not saying that he was created, rather that he is the creator. Verses 3 and 4, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the creator of all things. It was all made through him. In him was life. That life was the light of man. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus spoke of this in John 10, verse 10. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And later Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is telling us that he is life. He is the source of life. He's the way to life. He's the door to life. There's no other way to life but him. And all of this is because he was with God and was God. How can someone be both with and be? John is writing about the withness of God. This word with speaks of relationship, and it's an intimate relationship. We use the term Trinity when we speak of the Godhead. We're speaking of the triune nature of God. God is one being and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally with each other and of one nature. They are eternally in relationship. And this relationship is fully complete. The Godhead is fully satisfied, fully known, fully loving, and fully being loved, and fully glorified. Eternally love, life, and light. John is affirming the deity of Christ. And this is important. Right from the very first words, he is pointing out that Jesus is God. He was not just a good man. He was not just a good moral teacher. He was not a miracle worker only. He was and is God, eternally existent. And while there was a moment when he physically entered into our time and space, he preexisted. From and through him are life and light. Verse 5 shows us that this light shines in the darkness. Light is a common theme at Christmas. You can tell. We've got an Advent candle lit. We've got a tree that is lit. We've got Christmas lights that are lit. Um, Everything is lit. Uh, But you, you do lots of light at Christmas. You drive around. You look at the houses decorated in light. They don't even realize why. We light fires at this time. 
stay warm, but also provide light. And all of this points to the reality that the world is a very dark place. And if there's going to be any light, it has to come from outside the human race. This world is a dark place because of evil, suffering, rebellion, and more, but also because of ignorance and self, and it's all a result of sin. We don't have the knowledge or ability to help ourselves out of the darkness on our own. Any help or light that is needed has to come from outside of us. And Jesus is the light. The darkness, though real and present, cannot overcome it. Jesus comes into this darkness. The word comes. So what is the word? Well, truthfully, the word is not exactly the best translation of the Greek. The word translated as word in the Greek is logos. Logos. In this use, the writers are conveying more about the logic or the reasoning or the wisdom behind the word. And so logos, in its more common use, may refer to reason and thought, but it is more of a principle or a concept than simply a word. It is reason that has creative force behind it. It is thought that has cause and presence. It has creative cause. It is the reason behind a thought. It has presence. Some understood it to mean that when you received a letter from someone, it was as though their very presence was with you in their writing. Logos became an ever-changing and developing concept in Greek philosophy, predating John's writing. Aristotle thought of the Logos as the power of logic and reasoning, and as Greek philosophers sought to understand the universe and the realities of it, Logos grew to become the reason behind the universe. Various schools of thought formed around this. They argued over its meaning, and eventually it began to be viewed as the very source of the universe, shrouded in mystery, often pictured as an eternal flame, an eternal light. It was impersonal, and it was nebulous. John enters this picture, and he takes this conceptual term and says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Logos is Jesus. He is the reason. He is the logic of God. He is the thought of God. He is the word and wisdom of God, eternally with God, and is God. John takes this concept and says, yes, there is a reason for the universe. There is an eternal light a source of all that is, but it's not abstract or hidden. It is a person, and he is Jesus Christ. He has come into this world, and you can know him, and you can love him. So all that John is pointing to here in chapter 1, as we'll unpack it over these next few weeks, and yes, there are going to be some reoccurring uh, things because we're really only looking at 18 verses, so we will probably repeat ourselves often, especially since I've taken some of what others we're going to cover. <laughs> Not on purpose. 
But there's going to be repetition, but repetition is the best teacher. Jesus is the reason and he is the source of life. And that's what we're going to see over and over and over through this passage. He is light. He is love. And as John would explain in a later epistle, he is love. Christmas, the celebration and remembering of the incarnation of Jesus is the celebration of the Lagos, becoming flesh. More on that in a couple of weeks. But as we see in verses 10 and 11 of this passage, there are those who received him not. Rather, they rejected the Logos. So let's look at rejection. Uh, Reading verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This rejection of Jesus is not specifically speaking of just the time of his birth. Though we know the story from Luke, we know that he was uh, born, uh, laid in a manger, there was no room for them in the inn, we know the story, Uh, but this is not speaking directly of that time. This was written well after his death and resurrection. John is giving a prologue here to his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so in this prologue, he alludes to Jesus' own people, this is the Jewish people, rejecting him unto death. This rejection is connected to the darkness spoken of in verse 5. Jesus is the creator, but the world was dark and his creation didn't receive him. It was darkened. One translation says verse 10 this way, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world didn't recognize him. The eyes of creation darkened by sin cannot recognize him. There was a man who came in the middle of the night in the darkness to Jesus. And he wondered why he couldn't see. Not physically, but spiritually he couldn't see. And we read about this in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus, at this time, could not see. He couldn't see if Jesus was the promised one, the Messiah. And so just as he comes under the cover of darkness, so darkness covers his ability to see the light. Jesus explains that though the light has come, there are those who will reject it. There are those who will choose to remain in that darkness. Jumping down quite a bit to verses 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And does this mean that the darkness is winning? Does this mean that there is darkness that light cannot push back? No. It does mean that no one can truly see the light unless the Spirit gives life. 
to those darkened and dead eyes. As Jesus said, one must be born again. No, this is what we're going to do. One must be born again. This work of new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it's not a work of man. So what we're talking about here is regeneration, which is new birth. And it's a work of the Spirit. But some rejected him. So let's look at rejection. Broadly speaking, there are two types of rejection in sight in both chapter 1 and chapter 3. The first is rebellion. This is a rejection of Christ on the premise of unbelief. It is the loving of darkness that Jesus speaks about in chapter 3, verse 19. It is the denial of Christ. And at its core, it is a rejection of the Logos. It's a rejection of the very source of life. John's argument is that Jesus is life and light, but he is also the reason for it, the source of it. Mankind, in our sin-darkened state, says, I don't want you to be the source of life. I want to be the source of life. Of course, this is foolishness, but that's what sin does. It makes fools of us all. The sin-darkened heart therefore rejects Christ and his salvation as the source of life up until the very moment when the Holy Spirit breaks through and brings life to the one who responds in faith to the hearing of the gospel. We see examples of rebellion in the scriptures. Uh, We just looked at this recently before the flood. In Genesis, we saw that mankind had grown increasingly wicked. Their every thought was evil. God chose to preserve Noah, but everyone else had rejected him. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then in Isaiah 44, verse 18 through 20, uh, speaking of the one who makes and worships idols, one who rejects God for the sake of something else, says this, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it, in, the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So the one who rejects God in rebellion, his mind is darkened. And though most are not as evil as they could be, sin has affected every part. The darkened mind is deluded and bent towards self. All mankind is born sinful. Martin Luther describes this as people curved in on themselves. That's the sin nature, bent towards self. The second form of rejection is that of religion. Religion is a mostly neutral word simply a system of faith and worship. But there are several types of religion that we see in the scripture, and how I'm using it today is a negative type. This is religion in the sense of activity to please God that depends on self-effort, without living faith. It's relying on pedigree, one's family or national identity. It's relying on tradition, ceremony, rule-keeping, all to curry favor with God. And we see this in several places. Uh, Jesus spoke of the Pharisees, Luke 20, verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, 
they will receive the greater condemnation. Matthew twenty three twenty seven. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Second Timothy three one through five. But understand this: that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people." Now, this last passage sounds an awful lot like he's talking about those who are in open rebellion. But Paul says having the appearance of godliness. These are people who are doing all the external Christian things and yet are in darkness. They look externally good, but are relying on that outward appearance. They're no different than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Pharisees looked good on the outside. They made great, ornate prayers in public, using lots of big words. But Jesus says they devour. They were beautiful on the outside, but like a whitewashed tomb, a freshly painted tomb, still a tomb. And it's full of death and uncleanness. Remember who Jesus is speaking to here in John 3. It's Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. This means he was part of the Sanhedrin. He has more religion than most. But unlike many of the Pharisees, one thing is noticeably lacking, and that's the self-righteous attitude. But he still was sitting in darkness. And so Jesus is telling him that he needs to be born of the Spirit to be able to enter God's kingdom. And there's every indication that he does. He, He is born again. Maybe not this night. Maybe it was sometime later. Now, after all this um, talk about spiritual birth, Jesus does something strange here. He starts talking about snakes. John 3, 9 through 15, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has descended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus talking about? Uh, If you turn to Numbers 21, we'll take a look. Verses 4 through 9. Let's read about some snakes. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Speaking of the manna that God provided. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. 
and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Here, the people of Israel wandering around in the wilderness rebel against God again. And God sent a judgment of fiery serpents. The people repent. God instructs Moses what to do. Fashion a fiery serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole, and all the people had to do was look at it, and they would live. They only had to look once. So too, Jesus would be lifted up. The serpent crusher would be lifted up. Speaking of the cross, so that all would look and live. Jesus uses this strange occurrence in the Old Testament to show that the Son of Man, Jesus, has come in order to be rejected. This was the same visual storytelling that we've seen throughout our time looking at Genesis, God revealing the coming of the promised seed through dramatic events. How would God overcome the darkness? By sending his son, who is light and life, into the world of darkness to die, to be put on a cross, rejected and scorned. And this was all part of God's sovereign plan, that Jesus would be rejected and sentenced to death. This was God's plan. Peter and John uh, were in prison, and they prayed this in Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross was the plan. Jesus was rejected. And it's spilled out across the Old Testament, as we've been looking at. He was rejected so that you could be received and so that you could receive him. Why? Well, all of this has been the context of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love, light, and life cannot be separated or pitted against each other somehow. God is holy. He is light. He is other. He is set apart. And so because of the love relationship that he's always known in the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, perfect love, it overflowed. And God created mankind. Mankind sinned and was cut off from love, life, and light. Because no darkness can dwell in the light. But God, who is love, made a way for us to have his life. And he did it because of love. He was rejected and crucified in darkness so that you and I would be accepted receiving his love, light, and life. And so by faith we have received Christ and we are received by him. Verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To receive Jesus is to be born again. It's to become a member of God's family, all of which comes to us as a gift of God's grace. How do we receive? By believing in his name. When you receive him, you are received. John writes that he gives you the right to become children of God, born not in the natural way, but of God. The right to become children. Aren't all humans God's children? Well, in the broad sense, yes. We are his creation. We are his own. 
But John is speaking of a more intimate relationship. The right to become children implies that before spiritual birth, you didn't have access to this relationship in this way. You didn't have access to this right. But now it is given. And it's speaking of both a legal status and an intimate relationship. Legally, you've become the heir of the father. You share in the inheritance of your older brother, Jesus. What is his is also yours. Paul says in Romans that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That means that one day you will have a glorified, resurrected body. It means that you will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. It means that you will rule and reign with Christ. And to be honest, I can't begin to even describe it. It is true life. It is real life. And it means that you will have it all. So this speaks of the legal status as a child of God and the inheritance. But it also speaks of intimacy. It means you are received into a loving, close relationship. It is the closest of relationships. In a good human father and child relationship, and I recognize that not all of our earthly fathers have been good. But what it ought to be means access and connection. A child can go to their father. They have their father's ear. No matter how much I love you here at Grace Life, my daughters will always have access that others do not. See, they can come and jump up on my lap, lean in close, wrap their arms around my neck, and lovingly whisper into my ear, Daddy, can I have some ice cream? (laughs) Of course. More times than not. What does it mean to be a child of God? To be received by God. It means that the Father loves you with the magnitude and intensity with which he loves his only begotten Son. Now, how can I say such a bold thing? Well, because Jesus said it. In John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, love them even as you have loved me. Eternally. Fully. How do you get this? How are you received? Again, you simply believe in the name of Jesus. You trust in him, his death and resurrection. Just as the Israelites looked to the bronze serpent on the pole and were healed, you look to the son of man who was lifted up on the cross. Now, as we conclude this morning, consider why we celebrate Christmas. As I said, it's not just about baby laying in the manger, though it's okay to celebrate that. It's more than likely that Jesus was not born in December, this time of year. But Christmas is far more meaningful than just the festivities, just the music, the movies, the events, the lights, the gifts, though those all can be wonderful things. And the reality is you don't even have to celebrate Christmas in any particular way. You don't have to do any of the festivities. You don't have to do any of it. There is no command to do so. But what John is drawing us to in this first chapter and what all believers can celebrate is that Jesus, the word, the logos, the source of light and life, the anticipated lamb in the Old Testament has come. There are those who rejected him. But he came to be rejected so that those who believed could be received. He loved you and I and he made a way for us to have his light and his life, to be loved with all the love of the Father. And now those who dwelt in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned.
the Logos has come, so that through his resurrection, his death and resurrection, you would have his love, light, and life. And that's what I pray for you this morning, that you would know and receive his love, light, and life. If you have not received it yet, I pray that you would respond in faith by believing on the Son. Believe on the Logos. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus who has come. Thank you that he was rejected for those who would receive him. That he went to the cross. And now through his death and resurrection, we have eternal life. We have full access to you as Heavenly Father. You have made us your own. You've adopted us into your family. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has not believed, I ask that you would just uh, spark faith in their heart. Grant them the gift of faith and repentance, that they would believe the Lamb who died and rose again for their sin. This Christmas season, help us to quiet ourselves and remember the incarnation. That the Logos has come. And in him we have life and light and love. In Jesus' name, the name, amen.